Hey, this is Connecticut Voice Podcast with Kyone Wolf. I'm Kyone Wolf. We're all writers. I mean, you write an email checking in on a friend, you write a memo on your phone with a great idea for a song lyric or a cool product that should exist, you write a shopping list, you write a passive aggressive note on the windshield of someone's poorly parked car. I mean, who takes up four parking spaces? Come on. But what does it take to write a fantasy novel? What kind of relentlessness do you have to be driven by to see that through to the end? And how do you develop the storyline and characters into something special when there are so many great books, movies, and TV shows in the fantasy genre already? Drew John Ladd figured it out for himself with his book, Wolf Song Beloved, the first part of a trilogy. We talk about all these questions and how writing in the fantasy genre can allow an author to say things they never could otherwise, and how critical it is to talk about what it's like being a gay black man in America right now. And he talks about how he struggles with the extent to which he lets the intersections of his identity shine through in his writing. You'll hear. I started out easy by asking him to describe the book. The first book is about a boy trapped in a cage and an old man who has trapped him. It's from the little boy's perspective the entire time. The little boy and a wolf, alternating rather. Um, no relation to me? Or, I mean, if there's a relation to me, you can tell me. I mean, Kind of, yes, actually. What? Kind of thinking about it, actually. You're, you're more related to the person behind the wolf, but yes. We'll figure out royalties. The second one, <laughs> the second one starts a time before the first book, but then goes all the way up through the first book, and it's from the man who has captured the boy's perspective. And then the one after that starts even further back, and it's from the person who you partially inspired's perspective and the wolf. So it's the story being retold, but you telescope out every time. So the first one is about how the little boy has no memory. He's trying to figure out how he got there and what's happened. And the old man is like, I just need you to help me to kill this monster. And then you can do whatever you want in the world. Then it telescopes out and you find out why the old man in the next book would ever want to do that, what led him to that point. And then it telescopes out from there and you find other people have been pulling the strings in a particular way and that a thing that you thought was a thing may not be that thing, but another thing. Which is awesome because it's it's good to be knocked off course. As a listener, as a viewer, as a reader, it feels, in my opinion, it feels really exciting when you're wrong. So I like plot twists and things like that, but I like it when it's something that you can figure out. There is a huge, like a massive, massive plot twist, but there is plenty of uh, information to figure it out. But a lot of my short work focuses on relationships between people who are like very closely related to so like brothers and sisters, mothers and daughters, fathers and sons and things like that. And in this book, I kind of wanted to expand on that, on the idea of fathers and sons and all types of father-son relationships, exploring if they're important, why they're important and how and all that other kind of stuff, but doing it in a way where I get to have fun too and sort of be maximally creative. And fantasy sort of allows for that. So if I run into a problem, like how do I express this particular feeling or whatever, what fantasy allows is I can just throw some magic in there. <laughs> Rather than in the real world, you're trying to concoct something a little more believable and close to tangible. With fantasy, you can just put a dragon in there and like that's... <laughs> put that's a dragon your, on it. And I just happen to like <laughs> dragons and magic as well. So I'm, it's not a convenient place to go. It's, it's a really fun place to go. And, so there's a lot of sci-fi out there. Like there's a lot yeah. of really imaginative... With writing and literature and books, like there's a lot out there. So how do you... 
Hmm. What are you doing that you think no one else is? Yeah, oh, I was hoping almost that you would ask me this. So I often think of my experience, just my personal experience in life. I'm like, what do I have that most other Americans, just being sort of small-minded about it, hmm. what can most of other Americans don't have? And like The first thing I think of is like, well, I'm black. I'm a black man in America. Most people don't have that. And then I'm a gay black man in America. And what about those experiences then are worth talking about? I think discrimination in particular as a black man is a thing absolutely worth talking about. And fantasy, I think, allows me to talk about the experience of discrimination without having people necessarily be on the defensive. Uh, if it's like elves and orcs or whatever, you tend to be able to see righteousness a little more easily than if it's black people and white people. But rather than focusing on these elaborate magic systems, I really try and craft these special, believable moments between characters so that when a dragon shows up, the dragon isn't the most interesting thing in the room. It's people's reaction to it. I've shared huge chunks of it with my nephews and, and some of my close friends. Uh, and the thing they always talk about, which is what I hope they would, is the characters. When you're sitting down to write, do you have like an outline or is it stream of consciousness and you start steering one way or the other? How, mm. Where does that start with you? It depends. So like in the beginning, it's very much just sitting there and like whatever comes out, comes out. I try very much to just go unrestricted. I don't, I've never sat down and said, all right, I'm going to start this short story with this in mind. Or, or rather, I should say the times I have done that, it's, it's been a disaster. But then as the ideas, especially like with this book, for example, I, I like fake interviewed all of the characters. I had trouble making their voices distinct. I couldn't, like everybody sounded the same. Everybody used the same catchphrases. So instead I built the world out, the whole world with nobody in it. And then I sat down with all the main characters one at a time and wrote out a whole bunch of questions and did a one-way interview, I guess, where I asked them a question and then I would write down their answer. And I did it for all of them. And it was really bad. <laughs> it was really bad. Oh, my wait, God. Wait, bad in what way? They all started off as these really terrible caricatures. Like two-dimensional? Yeah, I didn't like any of them. But I did like what they represented. So I just started chopping off the stuff I don't like. Mm. One of the main characters is this this young lady who started off much younger and very tortured and all this other kinds of stuff. And I didn't like having that happen to her at all. Uh, and the more I investigated, I'm like, yeah, this is not necessary. So I let her be just as powerful as she was before. I let her have all the attributes she had before any of the tragedy happened. And instead, I just moved the tragedy aside. And suddenly, her character just, boom, blossomed. Like, it went from being impossible to write scenes with her in it to she absolutely takes over every single scene that she's in in the best possible way. Um, well, you were talking earlier about what makes you different. And one is that you're a black man and the other right. is that you're a gay man. And so when you talk about being up against something, mm -hmm. you're not only a black man and you're not right. only a gay man, but those parts of your identity, how are they informing how you're seeing the story evolve? Man, so I guess there's a part of me that wants to say, well, uh, some, but not as much as all the other parts of me combined. And it's not really true. I, I think a lot about the race and skin color and uh, economic position and everything else of the characters in my book. And I'll tell you why. When I, when I first started out, they were just people. And not because I was, I didn't want them to be uh, any particular race or whatever else. I just defaulted them to black, but they were just people. And nothing in the stories in the early drafts of these little whatevers um, mentioned their race or skin color. And my nephew, originally the story started as a bedtime story to him and then it grew into this. He asked me what one of the 
characters looked like. And I was like, well, I don't really, I don't really know. That's not very important to me. And he started describing this um, young Asian guy because he was really into anime. And I said, well, why can't he be a little black boy? And he said, no, there's no way he's black. And so I said, so now he's definitely black. In fact, all, all of them, everyone in this book is black. All the characters are black. And he kept looking at me. You can't do that. I'm like, I'm literally the god of this world. I can do anything. They're all black, everyone. I'm not sure if that's really the case, but I went through and like re-engineered in my imagination, <laughs> like legit re-engineered in my imagination what two of the main characters look like, like specifically in response to my nephew wanting them to not be black. I'm like, now they're definitely going to be black. And I do have uh, some gay characters. And I thought about that too. Like I, I really thought about, do I want to bring race and sexuality into this? And then I immediately, like my immediate reaction is, what do you mean bring it into this? It's part of the human experience. I'm not bringing anything into it. I can't be honest about my perspective without including everything. And this thing, this is not just the struggle of being black, because that's only a tiny part. Most of it is the like the absolute boundless joy and discovery and pride in being black. And the same thing with being gay, too. Just being completely frank, it's a things that a lot of white folk have no experience with, not even hearing it from someone else. That's why I write about it. And then the, the experience of being gay in particular, you learn a lot about honesty. I was going to say seekers, but like, mm, I think it's way more about honesty and like the kind of reflection that I had to go through that I had to do and still do and coming out and staying out and even like figuring out and defining in as much as it can be defined my sexuality and all the other kinds of stuff. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of work and it isn't just sort of the standardized, oh, I have to come to terms with being gay or being whatever I am. It's not that. I think it's understanding what that means for me, like romantically and sexually and socially and all these other sorts of things and how I plan to express that. And like, that's way more important to me than just that moment of like, oh, I like boys. Oh, okay. I went really hard at first and had characters who were born with physical, well, what everyone else thought were physical defects. And then they ended up forming their own little tribe in the woods and such and such. And that, that was a whole thing, but it was so heavy handed and it was like, ugh, I don't know. So I just, to kind of drive the point home, I just made it one kid, one boy, just randomly born with wings. And it instantly became a thousand times more interesting because now I got to sit in his head and he got to go through like doing all the work of kind of examining why people who would, who truly deeply loved him and experienced that love from them. Why is that cut off? And what did he do? And what does that mean about him as a person? And, what is his connection even to these wings? Are they even a part of him? And then making it one person instead of a group, I remove the whole us versus them argument. And instead, the choice is, do I relate with this character or not? And hopefully the answer is yes. And sort of even more broadly, I, I hope it's something that inspires people to consider perspectives that they could ne you could never have. And rather than trying to compare it to something that you've experienced or felt, standing in that ignorance and owning it and going, I could never know this and wonder at it. Sort of like, you know, when you see a fish breathing underwater. Like, it's kind of a cool thing and you could never experience it. That's what I hope to do with my work. And I, I think it's what everyone hopes to do with, with any kind of art that they create is to inspire a feeling and then sort of even more selfishly beyond that, connect with someone, hopefully. Even in the tiny moments where I'm watching someone read something I wrote or when they come back to me with something I've 
I've written and they want to talk about it and they have an emotional response. It doesn't even matter to me if they don't like it. I'm someone to that too. It's like, yeah, let's talk about what you didn't like. Let's break it down. Because that's a, that's an emotional reaction. Yeah. To have gotten any emotional reaction right. is powerful. I mean, the opposite of love is indifference, right? That's what Eli if, yeah. said. And if somebody feels something, like you got them. If they're bored, you that's failed. Right. That's it. I've written a lot of weird, <laughs> a lot of weird, weird things. Um, but I haven't yet shared anything that someone yet has said is boring. Thankfully, so knock wood. Like, I hope to keep doing that. Not for the sake of being weird, but. I don't know, man. I, I go back and forth. There's the sort of logical part of me says, even if you're one in a million, there are many thousands of you all over the place. Even if you have the most unique idea, that's one in a billion. It's, you know, six other people had that idea. At least it, you sort of feel there's nothing you could ever contribute that could ever be unique or important or useful. But then, like, I think of all, all the other people who have influenced my life. They have no clue. How, like, there's just a massive, it's a massive impact of just their example I don't know. All right. Now you have a chance to send a message to Drew the first day that this project began. Man. Okay. So, hey, man, I know you're really tired. There are only so many bar napkins. Save them. As this develops, it's going to get really weird. It's going to go a lot of places. Let it go those places and explore all those things all the way to the end of all those roads and everything. It's a much more sincere and simple story than you realize but you've got to create all this other stuff before you can chop it away and sort of see the tiny little gem that's in there it's worth it it's worth doing all that work and the scene in the barn is every single thing that you thought it was it never changes it's the only thing that hasn't changed why am i getting emotional (laughs) but it's the only thing that hasn't changed so it's worth it I have no idea why it's super emotional. (laughs) I have this kind of fear that because I never had a dad that I could never write a scene that was convincing. And that's not true, but it, it really felt true. And I was just worried about writing a book about fathers and sons that I've never had that. Not in the way that I imagine anyway. I write this scene out basically where a father is talking to his son, realizing that his son is at the age where very, very soon their lives are going to go in different directions. And no matter what they want uh, their relationship to be, it's just going to change. The world is going to force it to change. And he's trying his best to say to his son all the lessons and everything else that he's said over the course of his life. But instead, they just end up hanging out in the barn and talking about the kid's pet and like what a great job he's done learning all these tricks. That's it. To my mind, it's the best thing I ever wrote. I wrote out one time, I was in tears the entire time, and my hands were shaking. And I said, oh, well, it's just so super emotional. There's no way that's going to... And I went back a couple weeks later, and I just immediately started crying. (laughs) And then I shared it with uh, my best friend, and he read it, and then came back with it in his hands, printed, and like was in tears. And I was like, okay, that's... Can confirm, this is it. (laughs) Uh, I really can't wait to share it. All the work I've put into trying to be creative and honest and and hopefully this is it. And even if it isn't, I mean, honestly, the best feeling of it is just the attempt. That is the thrill for me. 
once it's done, then I can move on to whatever other books there are. And there's like a thousand other book ideas I have and am working on simultaneously because I'm a crazy person. But you know, this one feels the most honest. So I can't wait to share it. What advice would you give somebody who has always sort of had these ideas for a book, but they never pulled any triggers to get it done? What, what would, do you think you could say that would ever make a difference to get someone to consider going for it? Just write. It's like anything. You set aside time every day that cannot, no matter what, change, and you write. If it's 10 minutes, if it's five minutes in the bathroom, Every day, you start with whatever you can give. So if it's 30 seconds, like, all right, for, so for this month, 30 seconds every day, I'm just going to write. Guaranteed. Doesn't matter if I'm on a plane or if I'm sick or whatever. And you keep upping it. You'll find that at first you're just writing these little short, maybe tweet-length things. And then you'll start writing little longer things. Your 30 seconds will extend to 90 seconds without you knowing about it. That's exactly what I did. And I went from write, being able to write 100 words a day at max to at my peak, I was at 2,100 words a day easily. It's like any other craft. You just have to do a lot of it, and you have to be prepared to suck for a very, very long time. But then one day, much like much to your surprise, you'll find that you've acquired all of these small skills, and those things are your voice. And you use those things to craft more written things that don't suck as much. And then as you move on, if you're really lucky... To live long enough, you get really, really good at it. It starts with being terrible and shamelessly terrible and plugging away at it. But it's a thing that anyone can do. I mean, not everyone has the, the, the talent or the, quote, gift or whatever else. But like any skill, if you're willing to put the work into it, you're willing to survive the embarrassment of being really terrible and not knowing and, oh, my God, making these foolish mistakes for a super long time. If you're willing to put all that work in and push past that, the you that's the best at it is on the other side of all that work. What are some books that you've read a thousand times? Oh, God. Um, so I've read It by Stephen King uh, six or seven times. It's my favorite book by him from 2005 and before I read everything he's ever written. God, let's see. I've read Flowers for Algernon. I've lost count how many times. The short story version and the novella version a bunch of times. Heavily influenced one character in particular. Breakfast of Champions. There's a bunch of Kurt Vonnegut that I've, I've read at least two or three times. Did uh, you read Stephen King's On Writing? So I bought Stephen King's On Writing twice. My friends who write are like, oh, it's a revelation. It's so great. And I'm like, mm. Is there something in you that's resisting? I, so I have a fraught relationship with King. I, I loved his stuff when I was a kid because I wasn't allowed to read it. <laughs> and so therefore I read all of it. Yep. Then as I got older, I'm like, I really don't like the way he writes black people at all. I struggled through his la his like magnum opus. One of the main characters is a black woman. The way he writes her. What book is this? Uh, the Dark Tower series. In book six and seven of the series, uh, the way he writes Susanna and her father are just caricatures of black people. Her dad is a black preacher. And it's like a rumor of what a black preacher would even be in caricature. It's it's It just feels lazy and unimaginative, unlike the whole book around it. Which is surprising, right? You think if he's going to be researching and right. investing just, his imagination to everything else, We're everywhere. Well, I mean, he, he also lives in like one of the whitest places on earth, surrounded by white people. And that's sort of become his aesthetic, is writing about isolated white people in Maine and creepy things that happen to them. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you include black characters 
or when he includes black characters, I wish he would be more thoughtful. It comes off as insulting. And so to take writing advice from someone who's being inconsiderate about a thing that to me seems obvious and second nature, that's where I hesitate. And I'm sure I'll read it at some point, but I need to reconcile like taking advice from someone who at least in artistically hasn't been able to see people like me as real people, as more than just, hey, look, I have a black person. Like there are a million other interesting things he could have done um, having black characters. And even he, there's an interracial relationship in the in the series. He doesn't really explore that other than superficially. It, it feels very much like the old white guy answer to racism. You'll just be you and I'll just be me and we'll be fine. I don't, I don't know, man. That's... Wait, I don't see color. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. You were talking about your perspective as a black man, as a gay man, and this is not the default character right. that you hear or you read about. Is there anything that you're seeing out there be it movies or books or whatever, that's giving you hope for a broader, more multidimensional vision of what storytelling can be. We have to talk about, I mean, I know we have limited time, but we have to talk about Black Panther for just a second. I, I know every black person has talked about the experience, but I just need like a good test. Like I've seen every version of a black superhero on screen before. I remember even back to like Blank Man, even like lesser, like not superheroes per se, but like black hero or heroic characters. Like remember Sonny Spoon with like Mario Van Peebles way back when it ran for like a season and a half. I looked to TV for to try to find people like me because it was so rare. So to have Black Panther not only just be a movie with black people in it, but to be a like a black movie with black voices and black perspective and black imagination that doesn't exist really in the world in the mainstream to see it elevated to that level of visibility and then to see just uh to have it be in the nerdiest way possible i mean i'm a comic book nerd and to see black panther like blacker than uh, uh, it was awesome can we talk about wakanda for a hot second like wakanda it, it wasn't based on any european city like they went through and they found like african architects and African designers and all this other kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, so let's, let's imagine an African city and what would it look like? It was amazing. Every little detail. And just seeing black people throughout and also seeing white people called out on their foolishness in a superhero movie by black people in power. What? What? Like, every snap, every feeling. It was a movie that was not just a black movie, but a black movie by black people. And it wasn't just that. But black people with black messaging and black ideals and a black vibe, so much so that when white people showed up in the movie, they were out of place. And they weren't out of place because they were made to feel that way. It was because all this black stuff was going on and you have them saying something like, yeah, but aren't you just goat herders? That same thing that white people do today, white people talking about Africa as if it's one country instead of a collective. All they did was just have a white person do it around black people who weren't putting up with it. That's the only thing that made them look idiotic. It felt almost like double messaging because, like, people of color got that right away. <laughs> and I'm sure plenty of white people got it, too. But people of color most certainly got it where you you see these white people talking down to these, these nations, these nations of absolutely almost manifestly superior technology, technologically people and talking down to them with this trash and then have them be so absolutely above it that all they do is just kind of snort at him and call him a colonizer. Like, what? The kind of power... It really felt like a reminder we still absolutely can blossom in ways like this. And I don't remember any of the action scenes from Black Panther, but I remember him talking to his father a million percent. I remember them talking to one another 
without a white character on the screen trying to instruct or direct. Oh, and then the soundtrack. Oh, girl, the soundtrack just has me sweating. Oh, the whole thing was a mystical experience. It was, it gives me hope. What I hope, really, it's borderline a guarantee, at least spiritually for my feelings, is that there's a whole bunch of young black folk out there who have never seen black art succeed at this level. And now for them, that's the standard. They're, they're six. They're eight. They just, they just came up in the biggest movie ever. Stars and features black people in a black country with black technology and black power and black destiny and black direction and black agency. Like that movie exists as just a baseline. And they live in a world where we've already been president. We're looking to do that again and better, which, I mean, I love you, Obama, but we can do way better than you, Bert. We can do way better than Obama. I can't not be, like, almost dumbstruck feeling lucky being alive now. I don't know what's coming next, but I think it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be beautiful if you're in it, Drew. Thank you so much to Drew John Ladd. You can get updates on his book and support his work by signing on to his Patreon patreon.com slash Drew Writes Stuff. Thanks for listening to Connecticut Voice Podcast with Kion Wolf. If you like this show, subscribe to it. And please share this episode on your social medias. And leaving us a review really helps the algorithm gods float us to the top. Check out Connecticut Voice Magazine for more great interviews and photos. Sign up to get your free subscription at ctvoicemag.com. This podcast is always made possible by Connecticut Voice Magazine. And by me, my production company is at kionewolf.com, where you can see all my other shows and goodies I've got for you, and you can sign up for my newsletter. Find me on the Twitters and the Instas at kionewolf, and on the Facebooks at kionewolfproductions. Thank you for listening. Bye.